Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, we are in chapter 29. Chapter 29 is the last chapter of that section of the, the men of Hezekiah, you recall. Um, and so remember, the book of Proverbs, first 24 chapters, 23 chapters or so of the book of Proverbs, was Solomon's attempt to teach his son some things about the way of wisdom. So you may recall all the way back in chapter 1, we read this. Uh, I'm writing these things, as it goes on to say, to, that you may know wisdom and instruction, that you may understand words of insight to receive instruction in wise dealing. That's why he wrote this letter to his son. And in some ways, we're kind of like reading his son's mail. And we've been doing so for the last year or so as we've been making our way through Proverbs. And so for 24 chapters, Solomon would be telling his son these things. And again, you could look at Solomon's life and say, well, you're a hypocrite. You didn't live to these things in your day. And in many ways, this is Solomon saying to his son, don't make the same mistakes I've made. I've done so many of these things myself. I've learned from those mistakes. My son, I would protect you from those particular mistakes. And so 24 chapters dedicated to that. Then, starting in chapter 25, running through chapter 29, you have Proverbs of Solomon, which were not originally included by Solomon. So these were common sayings of his that he didn't necessarily put into the book of Proverbs, but the men of Hezekiah did 250 years later said, look, there's some more valuable stuff that Solomon didn't include. We will include them. We know Solomon said over 3,000 Proverbs, and only about 600 or so are included in the book of Proverbs. And so uh, the men of Hezekiah came up with another 150 or so words of wisdom that they included as well, sort of an addendum to this book. And today, we're going to come to the end of that section. Now, I'll say this. Much of chapter 29, a lot of portions of chapter 29 or ideas that Solomon himself has already um, included in the book. And so we've looked at those ideas. And they're even found in different places of uh, chapters 25 to 29, where the men of Hezekiah included these things. So we're going to skim through some of these Proverbs a little quicker than perhaps normal. Let's start with verse 1. It says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Being reproved. Now, being reproved or admonished, chastened, as some versions have it, rebuked. Now, you need to notice this. That's not really the problem in this particular proverb. And so this proverb isn't saying, I can't believe you did something that you need to be corrected about. That's not what it's saying. What it is actually saying is because we know we all fall short. And we all have to be corrected in a variety of ways. What Solomon is pointing out is the problem is not that you need to be reproved, but rather when you are often reproved, you stiffen your neck in response. So I'm not even sure being often reproved is the problem. But the problem is that you will stiffen your neck. So obviously it would be better if there was no need to reprove a person, and certainly not to have to do it a second time or a third time. But really what he is calling out here is this. He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And so the test then of who we really are and whether or not we're spiritual in the place that we can grow, the test then is how do we respond to reproof? 
And so throughout the Bible, this idea of hardening our necks, stiffening our necks, you think about the stubborn animal. I have a dog that sometimes is stubborn and has decided I'm done walking. We're, we, we go for a walk around the block at three quarters of the way and she's done, wants to go back the other way. And I'm like, you're dumb. You know, if you keep, we'll be done. You know, but she just stops, stiffens the neck, hardens uh, the neck, if you will, and is going no further. And so that that picture in our Bible, it's a figurative way of depicting the man or woman that refuses to give in, that stubbornly refuses to bend their will to any reproof, whether that reproof comes from other individuals, brothers and sisters in the faith, moms or dads, things like that, or if that reproof comes from God's Holy Spirit and conviction. This person here stubbornly refuses to bend their will, and they they dig in their heels. They strengthen their resolve. And no one, whether that be a small O or a capital O, no one is going to deter them from what they've decided to do. They have stiffened their neck. Now, the testimony of Scripture, we all know this, and I think sometimes we, maybe we, uh, we focus more on this than some other things in our theology, but the testimony of Scripture is this, that God is gracious, God is merciful, God is long-suffering. And we like that, those characteristics of God, don't we? But what we see in Scripture also is there comes a time where the Lord says, okay, and he pulls back. He says, you want to harden your heart? You want to stiffen your neck? You want to do your own thing? You want to dig in your heels? Then he pulls back and he lets that person do that. And as it says here in this particular passage here, they will suddenly be broken beyond healing. You can't help but think of the example of Pharaoh in the book of Genesis. And if you read that carefully, excuse me, the book of Exodus, and you read that carefully, you see this going on in his heart where the Lord continues to bring this reproof into his life and he keeps saying, you know what, you're right. And then he said, no, 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 we're not doing it that way. And he hardens his heart. And the Lord brings something. He says, all right, you're right. Go do what you got to do. No, I changed my mind. And he hardens his heart. And he goes back and forth. And then eventually toward the end of the the plagues there, it says, uh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there comes a time where the Lord pulls back and he says, if that's where you want to be, that's where I'll let you be. And such a person then is, as it says here, broken beyond healing. But notice this, it says they are suddenly broken beyond healing. And that word suddenly, that scares me. That's the word that I've kind of circled in my Bibles or I've underlined here, probably up here on the screen. And the reason why it scares me is this, because many times when I harden my heart, to the Lord's voice. In my head, many times, is, Lord, I know you're right. Eventually, I'm going to do it. I just don't feel like doing it now. And so I know this is true. I know it is right. And yet I harden my heart because I want to do what I want to do. This scripture says here suddenly. And when I do that, many times I say to myself, I'll eventually do what you're asking me to do, Lord. Just not yet. Be very careful. Because when suddenly happens... Most people are unexpecting the sudden to happen. Does that make sense? And so all of a sudden is there, and a person's heart is hardened beyond healing. And none of us, I could imagine, want to get there. And we would miss our opportunity to be in a right place with the Lord and to, the, and to repent. And so if the Lord, if he deals directly with us, whether that be directly or through his servants, he brings correction into our lives, that, this is the time to deal with that issue. Not to put it off, lest our heart harden. Because failure to do so, it only stiffens our neck, it only hardens our hearts, and it exponentially increases the risk 
that we will be broken beyond healing. Heavy words, certainly. Verse 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. Now look down at verse 16, because that says something similar, almost in the, in the reverse. But it says, when the wicked increase, transgression increases. But the righteous will look upon their downfall. And so two similar verses, and these are verses that are similar to some of the topics we've been considering in the last few chapters. And again, it's this idea that the stability of a society is directly linked to the morality of its leaders, or at the very least, what is permitted of its leaders, that the stability of society is directly related to those. And so when the righteous are in authority, people rejoice because righteousness results in peace and it results in safety. And conversely, when the wicked are in authority, the results are turmoil. The results are danger. It causes people, as it says here, to groan. And so the importance then of expecting righteousness from our leaders, and if we become leaders, to be righteous ourselves. We've looked at this topic a bunch. We'll move on. Verse 3 says this, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. It was fun hearing the Sunday school teachers. Some of the Sunday school teachers, they gather on Sunday or uh, Monday mornings and together they look at the passage here and they begin to prepare some ideas that they can share with the other teachers. It was fun hearing them consider how to present this verse uh, this particular morning here. I think they decided to skip the verse or, or something. I'm not quite sure. They'll leave it to the parents to talk about it. But it says, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad, but a companion of prostitutes squanders his wealth. I couldn't help but think of the prodigal son as I read this particular verse. And you remember there in the New Testament in that parable of the prodigal son squandering away his father's wealth in debauched living, riotous living, I believe is the word that it uses there. And a wise son or daughter will love and embrace wisdom. And as a result, they're going to bring great joy to mom or dad. And conversely, a son or daughter who demonstrates their lack of wisdom by chasing after and making themselves, to use the phrase, a companion of prostitutes or any that are in a lifestyle of low moral character, the the result is they're going to bring sadness and even break the heart of mom or dad who wants nothing but the best for their child. And so the wise son or daughter will live in a way that makes their father, their mother glad. Verse 4 says, By justice a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. Some versions translate that exacts gifts there as taxes heavily. Can I get an amen from my Tea Party patriots that are out there? I'm sure you're out there. The point is this, that a ruler who oppresses the people of his kingdom, tax heavily, taxes excessively there, actually tears down his kingdom. And such a ruler is not going to be the ruler for very long. Many rulers sometimes feel as if it's the heavy hand that's going to solidify their position of power. And we learn here, it's not the heavy hand that establishes a kingdom, but rather the just hand that establishes a kingdom. And those are the measures that the Lord will bless and that the people will embrace. Just to put a word of authority, if you will, on this. Matthew Henry, who wrote in the mid-1600s, an English commentator, he said this, the care and business of a prince should be to establish the land, to maintain its fundamental laws, to settle the minds of his subjects and make them easy, 
to secure their liberties and properties from hostilities and for posterity and to set in order the things that are wanting. This he must do by judgment, by wise counsels, by the steady administration of justice without respect of persons which will have these good effects. Is that up on the screen there? It's not. So did, how many of you zoned out about the third line uh, of that? Probably many of you. Basically what he says is we need good princes, good rulers. Just, not showing partiality to this person that's connected compared to that one, to these people over here I like compared to those that I don't like. And when you have a, a ruler like that, king, president, governor, mayor, or whatever, when you have a ruler like that, that's an established society that hums along as it's supposed to hum along. Remember, the elect or officials, they are God's servants. This is God's plan, an organized society that works in harmony with one another as it moves forward. And so uh, whenever you have a ruler that will not act in accord in that particular fashion, you're going to have a, a troubled society. Verse 5, a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Now to flatter, you, you know the word of course, but it's to excessively praise or give attention to someone with the hope of gaining influence or status with that person. Okay? So to encourage a person is different to flatter a person. Because you go out, you, you step out to flatter a person, you're saying something with your mouth that does not necessarily line up with your heart. You're trying to get something from that other particular person. They're saying what their heart does not mean in order to mislead or to curry favor. And we should not use flattery. Okay? You can encourage people, you can say nice things about people, but when it crosses over to trying to deceive them or butter them up to get what you want from them, then you've stepped outside of what is appropriate for a child of God. So we should not use flattery to manipulate others to get what we want. And I would suggest to you, this verse also cautions us, is that we need to use caution so that we would not be taken in by flattery. And so when people start to flatter us, our typical response is, tell me more. I'm finally glad somebody sees what a great person that I am. We love flattery. It appeals to our flesh. Our hearts tend to embrace it. But what we learn here is we need to be careful not to be taken in by flattery lest we be tripped up. You see that there it says he's spreading a net for his feet. And again, the challenge is our hearts are already prone to think well of ourselves. So when people start saying good things of us, we readily embrace it and we're drawn into the trap. Before long, we are ensnared in the net, to use Solomon's phrase there. And so wisdom then, one, don't use it yourself to manipulate other people. But two, is to keep a watchful eye on those that are attempting to flatter you, lest you be tripped up by their snare. Again, to quote another commentator, Adam Clark, he said this, beware of a flatterer. He does not flatter merely to please you, but to declare excuse me, but to deceive you and to profit himself. So be on your guard. That's a mark of wisdom, and you'll keep yourself from being ensnared. Verse 6 says this, An evil man is ensnared in his transgression, but a righteous man sings and rejoices. It's an interesting word picture here that he is creating for us, and it stands diametrically opposed to conventional thinking. So conventional thinking tells us that things like religion or morality, that that binds a person. 
that that hinders a person from truly enjoying life. That the only people that can truly enjoy life or that are truly free in society are the ones that give themselves totally and completely to whatever desires that they fancy. That's what conventional wisdom tells us. Now Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, tells us something different. And Solomon instead says this, evil, an evil man is ensnared by his transgressions. And so the evil man, they could go out on a Friday night, they could drink, they could party it up and all these sorts of things, and nobody can tell them differently. And I'm not going to be controlled by the opium of the masses or something, and they start breaking out big words or whatever to make you look foolish. And they can go out and do all these things that they're going to do. But the reality is we all know this. We've lived life long enough, many of us here, that we can point to plenty of examples is that that particular lifestyle eventually catches up with the person and they find themselves ensnared in one fashion or another. And so whether that be through the loss of relationships that occur during those periods or the consequences that come about because of something that happened while they were under the influence or the slow development of an addictive lifestyle, or a myriad of other ways in which it can play out, the reality is that lifestyle catches up with people and it eventually will ensnare them. And really what that person who said, I'm free, I can do whatever I want, nobody can tell me about this or about that, all they were doing was setting a snare for themselves, a trap for themselves. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, that eventually they will fall into. So the righteous individual then rather than setting a trap for themselves, rather than having to watch everywhere they step lest they be tripped up, notice what it says about them. Essentially, it says they move, they just continue down that path humming along. Uh, Singing is what he says here. They got their head up, they're singing a song, they're not necessarily paying attention to every step that they are taking because they don't have to. They're on the path of righteousness and they can rejoice, as he says there. They sing and they rejoice. They're in peace They're in that state of tranquility. They find in themselves a life that is in harmony with Christ. They're the options. You can set the snare for yourself to trip yourself up, or you can walk without the fear of that snare tripping you up, singing and humming along. The way of wisdom is the latter. Verse 7 says, A righteous man knows the right of the poor, or the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. King James says this, It says, instead of a righteous man knows the rights, it says, considereth the cause of the poor. And so in both of those cases there, knowing the rights or considering the cause, the idea there, it goes beyond being aware of or even taking a moment to consider the situation of the poor. But the idea of considering the cause is taking its thoughtful compassion in action. It's thoughtful, compassion, and action. So it's one thing for us to say, that's really bad. That's too bad. I feel so bad for that guy. But then do nothing. This is thoughtful, compassion, in action. And I think every one of those words are important. It's important to be compassionate. It's, a compor- it's important to take steps. That's the action aspect. But it's also important to be thoughtful in that particular process. So it's not enough to just see the need or even to feel bad about a person's circumstance, but rather we're called to thoughtfully take action to remedy those circumstances. And this is what I believe we're doing here at Calvary with RHM Ministries. And I'm I'm so impressed with the ministry that they're doing because I believe they take thoughtful compassion with the people that they're caring for. It's thoughtful compassion in action. And it takes great wisdom 
to know how to help effectively and how to help in such a way that does not hurt. We sent a mission team a few years ago over to Kenya, and one of the requirements of the team before they went was to, to view a video teaching series uh, entitled When Helping Hurts. Because sometimes our action, our compassionate action, isn't actually thoughtful and can actually be hurtful. And so we want to bring all of those things together, and, and we're so fortunate we have the Holy Spirit who can direct us and lead us and guide us as we seek him for his wisdom. So the righteous which is certainly what I hope each of us are striving to walk in, the righteous will care for the poor, and they'll do so in a way that is truly helpful. You look, look conversely there, the wicked, who by nature rebel against God and God's heart, they can't even understand such compassion. You see there it says, wicked men does not understand such knowledge, because the concept of taking thoughtful, compassionate action towards somebody else runs completely opposite to the natural thinking of the wicked individual, the, the unbeliever. Because the unbeliever, life's about self. And so why would I help this person if it doesn't help me? Oh, I'll help this person. Let me just get a selfie so everybody can see what a wonderful guy I am. I'll help this person. Would you sign this paper for me because I need service hours for school? If th those things become our motivations, it's self-interest. You can do that. I'm not saying kids don't come and get us to sign your papers and things like that. But the point is, what's the purpose? Is it to ease your ego or to stroke your ego so everybody thinks well of you? Or is it to generally help this particular individual here? And so the wicked person can't even understand it. Bottom line is this. Righteous people take an active interest in the cause of the poor while the wicked are not interested in showing any concern. And I just encourage you, as I've said before, ask the Lord to show you which side of that pendulum your life and actions regarding this matter, tend to lean. Righteous people take an active interest in the cause of the poor. Verse 8, scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Reading this verse, I'm reminded of the story in 1 Kings, the account in 1 Kings. Somewhere around 1 Kings chapter 10, 11, and 12, Solomon passes off the scene. He had been the king of the nation, and his son, Rehoboam, is going to take the, um, the kingdom. And we have an instance there where there's a young man, his name is Rehoboam, excuse me, his name is Jeroboam, I hate this, uh, it's too complicated, all right, but Jeroboam had been at odds with, Sol with Rehoboam's father, Solomon, and there was a group of people along uh, that aligned themselves with this fellow, Jeroboam. And so when Rehoboam, Solomon's son, I'm sorry, I know the names are all very familiar, when he becomes king... Jeroboam approaches him, and Jeroboam essentially says to him, hey, look, and I'll read it to you. Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel, they came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke upon us, and we will serve you. Now, if you're familiar with the story, you know that Rehoboam's response set the city aflame. In, in actuality, you go ahead and read it, he set the whole nation aflame. Because there were some counselors that came to Rehoboam and said, look, Jeroboam is trying to make up with you. Respond kindly to him, rule him well, and you've won him over. And Jerob Rehoboam's like, okay, thank you. Then he goes to a bunch of young men, and he says, what do you guys advise that I do? 
And the young men who are just being introduced to power, they think that the purpose of power is to show everybody how powerful you are. They say, what you need to do is you need to start beating some people. You need to start whipping some people. You need to come up with cute little idioms like, my pinky is bigger than my father's thigh or, or you know, something like this. You need to show them how tough you are. And Rehoboam embraces this idea, and that's essentially what he goes to tell Jeroboam. And, he sa- and Jeroboam says, well, then, you've made your bed. And he goes to war against Rehoboam. And the nation of Israel, 12 tribes called out by God, is divided in a civil war. And Jer- Rehoboam loses half of his kingdom geographically. Ten of the 12 tribes leave him and align themselves under Jeroboam. And the only land that, uh, that Rehoboam got he got the southern portion, which is like three-fifths desert. Good job. How'd that work out for you, being Mr. Tough Guy? And he was the king of Israel. The northern tribes took the name. So now he's the king of Judah. All because he had to show how tough he was. And I can't help but look at it. Those men that came to him, whatever, they were scoffers. They responded the way they did to Jeroboam to show Jeroboam nobody's going to tell us. And scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. Rehoboam missed his opportunity there. Okay? Don't do that. There's your takeaway. Don't do that in your life. Verse 9. If a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. Now, a wise man or woman can contend with another wise man or woman, and there's a very good possibility that one or both of them are going to see the merits of the other person's argument. Two wise individuals coming together trying to figure this thing out. However, if that same wise man or woman contends with a fool, then the outcome is either going to be mocking or anger, Solomon tells us here. Because the fool is either going to rage in response or is going to laugh in response. What they're not going to do is sit down and quietly listen to your carefully developed argument. And so Solomon's point is this, don't even bother then trying to convince the fool. Now, I do think you can give it a try. I don't think we should just be looking around like, that one's a fool, I'm never talking to him, and that one, no, not going to talk to him. I think you can give it a try, but when it becomes evident that the person's not going to listen and that they are indeed a fool, well, then you need to just stop. You're not doing yourself any good by trying to convince the fool. To use the kind of a phrase Jesus had in the New Testament, that's when it's time to shake the dust off your feet and to say, well, you know what, I gave it my best shot. And then you move on to somebody else that actually will listen because nothing, is po- nothing positive is accomplished in arguing with a fool. Verse 10 says this, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and they seek the life of the upright. Those that are given bloodthirsty, given to violence, given to brutality, they hate the upright, Solomon tells us here. Because, I would say this, because of the silent witness of the upright person's life. I don't know if you've ever been in that particular circumstance where you're not doing anything. You're just living your life. You didn't say anything. You didn't do anything. You're just kind of living your life. And someone will look, why are you judging me? I didn't say anything. You're judging yourself. And you know your life is awry. You know that you're in the wrong. And you're looking at my life and thinking, I'm judging you and I'm not. And so uh, we see here sort of the animosity that is between the upright and the wicked. Holiness and godliness invariably provoke the disdain of wicked men. 
And that just is what it is. And so if you have folks that don't like you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ or you're self-righteous that you are, and you know you're not, you're just living your life, don't let it get you down. Just do what you got to do. Keep running your race. Live your life. Check your heart, certainly. Make sure there's no truth into, in the things that they are saying to you. But if they just don't like you because your life silently witnesses against them, don't let it get you down. Jesus said they would hate you as they hated him. Verse 11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. I've said this a lot. Um, You're probably thinking, he must have a problem with this. I, I don't know, maybe I do, but it's come up a lot in Proverbs, and that is just because something comes to our minds does not mean those thoughts need to come out of our mouths or come to our lips. Solomon says here that the wise person quietly holds back. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but the wise man quietly holds back. And we see the same idea. Look down at verse 20. There it says, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. It's the same idea here. Proverbs teaches us throughout. These two verses teach teach us that a mark of a fool is that they don't have control over the words that they say. That that's a key mark of difference between a wise individual and a fool. Wise individuals, they don't need to pontificate about every matter. Well, you want to know what I think on that? No. No, I don't. If I do, I'll ask you, you know. But some people feel they have to weigh in on every single matter. Some people feel they have to comment on every little thing. That's that's why I got off Facebook. I just couldn't take it anymore. I I just wanted to get, you know how you can cut and paste and just push a button and drop it in? I just wanted to drop in, who cares? Who cares? You know what I think? Who cares? You know what I think? And that's just my hard heart. Forgive me. All right, I would never do that to any of you. You're all wonderful people. But you don't have to comment on every little thing or to this idea of venting to the Spirit. Some people just feel they have to erupt. This has angered me, and so I'm going to let everyone know how angry I am. And so they erupt when something is frustrating them. But, and that, that's the fool. The fool gives full vent to his spirit, or to use verse 20, is hasty with their words. If it comes to mind, then it comes to their lips. And the fool will tell everyone what they're thinking, what they know, without giving any thought to whether these things are right or not, or whether they're helpful or not, or whether they're edifying or not. All of the rules in which we are told as followers of Christ, we are to adhere to with the words that come out of our mouths. Do these words build up? Are they edifying? Are they even correct? And so on and so forth. Somebody said this, the older and wiser a person gets, the less they talk, but the more they say. And again, the fool thinks that everyone's interested in their thoughts and ideas, and so they're obligated to inflict that on all the rest of us. But the wise man restrains themselves. Not easy but good. Verse 12, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. So if all of your counselors, or if you are a ruler, and all the counsel that comes to you is based on lies, pretty soon all your decisions are going to be based on lies. And if a ruler demonstrates that he or she is willing to listen to falsehood and and act accordingly, Well, then that ruler establishes a standard in that administration or in that society. And the standard is then wickedness. 
Because what people begin to say to themselves, well, this is what the king or queen wants. This is what the mayor wants. This is what the governor wants. So that's what his or her counselors is going to bring them. And the result then is that when the servants see that the ruler can be influenced by lies, then they are encouraged to lie. If they observe that deception is rewarded, well, now they're encouraged to, or the idea of telling the truth now becomes discouraged. So that's what the king's going to get. The king's going to get lies. That's not the recipe for success in an administration organization. And so if a person is a leader of a particular organization, when they compromise with their subordinates, so to speak, they have just sent a message to that subordinate and anyone else observing, do whatever you need to do to get the job done. And such an organization is not going to succeed. All of it starts at the top. A king, a president, a CEO, the head of a department has to set a high standard and rigorously maintain that standard or they will face the consequences of wickedness running rampant through an administration organization. So many of you, I know you lead in certain places at work or things like that. The standard starts at the top. Make sure you have the highest of standards. Verse 13, the poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. So whereas there may be great disparity between the poor person and the oppressor, and that's the idea of the ruler, so there may be great disparity in society between those two individuals. What Solomon reminds us here is those two individuals meet on common ground before God. Or as Solomon says, the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. And so if the Lord treats those individuals equally, then you and I should treat those individuals equally as well. That's wisdom. Now verse 14, I think, further amplifies the idea. This idea of how God expects us to treat both the connected and the unconnected of society. He expects, as verse 14, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. So the king who refuses to show partiality, refuses to judge differently between the rich or the connected or the powerful and the poor, seemingly unconnected and not powerful, if that king has different standards for those individuals, that king's not measuring up to this particular passage here. And they cannot expect to have a long reign. But the one who does judge fairly, equally, the same, both rich and poor, can expect to have, as it says, a long reign. Their throne will be established forever because God will bless that reign. And as I said earlier, the people will embrace that reign. So I quoted earlier from Romans 13. It's the duty of governing officials. The New Testament, again, calls them God's servants. It is the duty of governing officials to judge faithfully all causes that are brought before them according to truth. And in doing that, they secure God's favor and the affections of the people. Verse 15. We're going to take verse 15 with verse 17, two similar ideas. Look at verse 15. It says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Verse 17 says, Discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Both instances, you see the importance and the benefit of providing our children with discipline and instruction. So Solomon says that the rod, that would be discipline, and reproof, that would be instruction or rebuke. He said both the rod and reproof give wisdom. And the testimony of Scripture, even if 
modern parenting books disagree, the testimony of Scripture is that a child that is lovingly disciplined is a child that is well-loved. A child that is lovingly disciplined is a child that is well-loved. It's hard to discipline our kids. And I don't mean like, go to your room. That's easy. It's hard to instruct our kids to consistently do so and to do it again tomorrow and to do it again the next day and the next day. But it will be both to the benefit of the child and the parents to lovingly, faithfully, and consistently correct and guide our children to maturity. Because a child that is never trained with loving correction more often than not brings shame to their parents, as it says here. So these Proverbs and many others then speak to us of the importance of mom or dad correcting and training their children. Because if left to themselves, or if left to the world, or if left to their peers to raise them, our kids will grow up to be an ongoing source of trouble and difficulty. It's firm, yet loving, and consistent guidance is, that is what our children need. And that requires a commitment on the part of us as parents, a commitment on our part to the future growth of our children at the expense, perhaps, of my present comfort. I don't want to have to get up off of this couch with my bowl of chips and watching my TV program to go and deal with a problem. Go to your room. And that's how I respond. That's not loving discipline. And it's not, it's not properly going to teach or correct my kids. And so I have to have a greater commitment to my kids' future growth than my present comfort. To put the recliner down, to put the chips down, to go walk in and say, what did you do wrong? And why was that wrong? And I can't believe we're doing this again. You know, these things. That's what you got to do as a mom or dad. You love your kids, that's what you'll do. Now, verse 16, we looked at with verse 2, so we won't go back to that. Look at verse, we just did verse 17 with 15. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says this, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Sound somewhat familiar? You know that proverb? No? This is a very popular proverb. Apparently not. With my friends that I hang around with. We talk about this all the time. It's commonly said this way. It's very interesting. It's commonly quoted as this, Where there is no vision, the people perish. You've heard that one. Okay, different version. Forgive me. I should find out what you're reading here. So that's a somewhat popular proverb. Churches, they throw this around. Organizations throw this around, even non-Christian ones, where there's no vision of people perish. This is what we're going to do, everybody. And they have their big, you know, Google meeting or something like that. I doubt Google's quoting this verse. Um, but other organizations, perhaps, are doing so. What we need to be careful with is this. This verse is not simply espousing embracing any old vision. Just have a vision. Make sure you know where you're going. Now that tends to work. People that know where they're going tend to get there compared to people that just wander around aimlessly. So that principle generally works, but that's not what Solomon is getting at here. And so the ESV, as I read to you, it says where there is no prophetic vision. The NIV, many of you read the NIV, it says where there is no revelation. And so that idea of revelation, well, someone's doing the revealing, it's in the Bible, it must be God. Okay, and that, yes, it is. And so the idea of prophetic vision or revelation, what we're speaking of is this idea of God's vision, God's revelation. And we know that God's primary means of communicating with his people is through the word of God. 
And so then the takeaway from this particular verse is this, and the word is, it's a Hebrew word. I don't even know how to say it. I'll just fake it. It's chazown or something like C-H-A-Z-O-W-N is how it's sort of transliterated there into English. It's always associated in the Bible with dreams, revelations, divine communications, and things like that. So again, Solomon here in verse 18 is talking about the word of God. And what, so then what Solomon is saying is when God's word is unavailable to a society or when God's word is rejected by a society, the end result is that people cast off restraint or the people perish. Because the only thing that then restrains those individuals is what they want to do and what they don't want to do. Do you want to do this? No, not really. That's their restraint. That's the only thing that is keeping them. That society no longer has a standard greater than their own fluid feelings. And this is why our society goes in these directions here. Whether it's from politics and who we vote for from this extreme to that extreme, or it's our levels of morality and what was once correct and right and this is what we should be striving for is now completely on the outs and there's a whole new other idea here it's become it becomes as it was in the final days of the day of judges where it says every man does what was right in his own eyes does that not define our society every man does as long as you don't go past you know these laws that are going to put you in jail every man does what is right in their own eyes and it's it becomes ridiculous as many of you know you've probably filled out forms name, sex. Have you gotten to that one? And, and read the drop-down list, and you're like, oh my gosh, how did this change? Or whatever. There's five choices now, or something, where it always used to be two. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Now, by way of contrast, there's happiness, and there's contentment for the one who keeps God's law. So where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Again, other versions translate this, the people perish. But blessed is he who keeps the law. And again, that word blessed, happiness. Oh, how happy. Our creator, I've said this, our creator knows what will be for our good and what will be for our benefit. He knows. He designed us accordingly. And so when we walk in his ways, then we're in that sweet spot of life. And that's what he calls here blessed or oh how happy is that particular person. Where the word of God is cast off, there is no restraint, the people perish. Embrace the word of God, live according to the word of God, and you'll feel the blessing on your life. Verse eight, uh, excuse me, 19. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined, for though he understands, he will not respond. Now, we're called to be servants in the Bible. And so this isn't necessarily um, coming against servants in general. The idea is the obstinate servant, the stubborn servant. I'm not listening to anyone. And so this is a message then that for the hard-hearted, obstinate servant, mere words, that's the words that he used there, are not going to suffice to bring about obedience in that person's life. For the obstinate servant, what's needed is the heavy hand of discipline. The heavy hand is needed to bring about compliance here. Now, you need to notice here, it, says, it doesn't say that the servant doesn't understand. So this isn't a situation where the guy didn't know. I didn't know what I was supposed to do, and that's why I didn't do it. It says here, for though he understands, he will not respond. This is, again, a person that has dug their heels in, 
and said, no, no one's telling me to do anything. This is not a head problem. It's a heart problem. And in that instance, it's going to take more than words to get this servant to respond. And my mind turned here to the prophet Jonah. And so Jonah was a prophet. You, you saw the Veggie Tales, you know the song. All right, Jonah was a prophet. We've learned that about him. And yet, Jonah, when told to go and do something by God, prophets respond to that, went the complete opposite direction and did his own thing. And no doubt the Lord was saying to him, where, where are you going? Why are you getting on this ship? Why are you buying a, a ticket for that particular day? You're going the wrong way. No doubt the Lord was speaking. There were words that were there. But Jonah wouldn't listen to the words. And so then Jonah and others had to experience the pain. And so then the storm, then the people panicking, then people throwing everything overboard, then finally throwing Jonah overboard. And Jonah was swallowed up, as it says there, in the great fish and eventually vomited out onto the very land that he tried to avoid. God was going to bring him to that land, but it took a lot of pain for Jonah to finally see things God's way. It is so much more pleasant to bow the knee, isn't it, to the Lord, rather than be forced to bow the knee? So much more pleasant to willingly bow than to have it forced upon us. And so what's the key? More head knowledge? Come on, that was an easy one. No, it's not more head knowledge. It's heart knowledge. Make sure you have a tender heart with the Lord so that all he has to say is, don't go over there. Go over this way. And you listen. Rather than him snagging you by the hair and pulling you over this way. That hurts. Happened to me. Many a time. Ripped it right out. Just kidding. You shouldn't make fun of bald people, we learn with the story of Elijah, isn't it? Or, you know, it's a very important lesson of the Bible. Don't make fun of me. Verse 20, we already considered. You see it there. Look at verse 21. Whoever pampers his servant from childhood will in the end find him his heir. Now, you, you could look at that and you're like, well, that sounds positive, I guess. It, it's not meant to be positive. Um, and what Solomon is addressing is, if you will, that overly familiar relationship between the employer and his or her employee. And he's implying here that a relationship, oftentimes it's going to breed a contempt in the relationship where one will rise up against the other. So that inappropriate level of familiarity many times ends up breeding content, or excuse me, contempt. And before long, that pampered servant is not going to think of, he's going to think of himself too good to be a servant and will rise up. And so I think the helpful application for us is this, you know, certainly exercise wisdom in the way that you lead other people. Um, but I, I think just a practical helpful application is this, is there is in me a flesh and there is the things of the spirit in me, God's spirit doing his work in me and having enlivened my own spirit. And the Bible tells us that our flesh is supposed to be the servant to our spirit. And so we die to our flesh. You're familiar with these verses. I think I, I have one of those that is on there. It says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. We, we die to our flesh. We live to the things of our spirit. But I'll say this. If you pamper your flesh, your flesh is going to want to rise up and reign over your spirit. 
Okay? So that's sort of the connection that I'm making there. And so the value of denying ourselves, saying no. And everything's going great. I'm doing good. I'm following the Lord. You know, I love him and all this kind of stuff. Introduce fasting even into those great times. A lot of times we fast when we panic. Oh, gosh, I really need it. The doctor said it could be cancer. I go back on Monday, call all my friends to fast. So we, we fast when we panic or we really want God to do something as if he has to do it because, God, I fasted all day. You have to give me negative results. We should fast regularly. And look who's talking. You know, I, I hate fasting, you know, whatever. Um, anyway, I have to keep my head clear, you know, so I have to eat a lot of food so that I'm where I need to be. But fasting is good because it just tells your body, you know what, you'll be okay. Your flesh coming, you've got to eat right now. You'll be all right. You can wait another meal. And we'll get to it. And so it'll, it causes your spirit to reign over your flesh. You keep f- uh, pampering your flesh, your flesh is eventually going to want to reign over your spirit. Okay? Verse 22. A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Angry men stir up strife. Angry women stir up strife. And they cause all sorts of problems. And so your best bet is to avoid such a person. That's Solomon's simple wisdom. Verse, it's like the fool. Verse 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. James chapter 4 says that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so if God opposes the proud, then it should go without, without saying that pride will naturally bring a person low. What I find interesting about this particular proverb is that the one who wants to be honored is brought low, and the one that is not seeking honor ends up obtaining it. And really, these ideas shouldn't surprise us because we know that the Lord honors humility. And for just about every one of us, we are drawn to people that are humble and we pull back from people that are just proud and arrogant. At least I do. I, don't, I imagine many of us do as well. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the same principle works with the Lord. Verse 24. Hold on one second. It says, the partner of a thief hates his own life. He hears the curse but discloses nothing. Partnering with a thief. Partnering with a thief is rejecting wisdom. It's embracing foolishness for a variety of reasons. One, if they stole from others, it's just a matter of time before they're going to steal from you. And if they share in the plunder, if if you're the person who shares in the plunder of the thief, now you've made yourself a co-conspirator with that thief. And any penalty that eventually is going to come against the one who stole those items is going to come against you as their partner as well. Solomon says such an individual hates their own life. They willfully do those things that are going to bring upon themselves judgment. And it's foolish to do so. So the partner of a thief hates his own life. Verse 25, the fear of a man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Now last week, we learned the happiness possessed by the one who fears the Lord. Proverbs 28 says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. Here, we see the dangers experienced by the one who fears man. So it says, The fear of a man lays a snare. You cannot fear God and at the same time fear man. It's one or the other. You can't fear God and fear man. The fear of man results in yielding to human pressure. So you look at the example of Abraham twice in the book of Genesis, who because of his fear of man 
would actually lie about the relationship he had with his wife because, lest they kill him for his wife. And so then she goes, gets married off to somebody else temporarily. Abraham feared man and de- denied his wife twice. Peter feared man and denied his Lord three times, we read in the gospel. Somebody said this, we fear man so much because we fear God so little. And many of us, we're people of good heart. We don't want people to be upset with us or bother, bothered by us. We have a good heart, but we don't have enough courage. And thus we live in bondage to the fear of man. We worry too much about what people think instead of first being concerned about what God and wisdom say, what integrity would lead us to do. And so that fear of man then becomes a snare that traps many people. Jesus said this, Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You cannot fear both God and man. You have to make your decision who you're going to walk in fear of. Verse 26, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Now this, in many ways, relates to the fear of man mentioned in the previous verse. Because if we depend upon the ruler's favor for our prosperity and for our security, then we're going to continually be pursuing the ruler's favor. And our wisest course of action is to look to the Lord and seek the favor of the ruler of all rulers. And so rather than thinking that all our deliverance is going to come from a mere man, we recognize that it comes from the Lord. Now this doesn't mean we can't seek relief from injustice through the legal system. Just this last week, we had a meeting with the township officials regarding the situation with our building so that they could advocate for us. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that you can't seek relief Uh, through the legal system. But what it does mean is that we place our ultimate trust in God, that he's the one that will accomplish justice rather than some mortal man. And many people, they look to an earthly ruler as if that person is the solution to all their problems. It's from the Lord that justice comes. I think of election day, particularly presidential elections, because all of us seem to pay attention to those. And if our guy gets in, gal gets in, oh, the world is great. And Lord, you're so good. But if the other guy or gal gets in, oh my gosh, God, where were you? We got to pray, you know, these kinds of things. Because we're looking at that individual as a solution of all of our problems, from my perspective. All right, closing verse. Last verse of the men of Hezekiah, verse 27. It says, an unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to to the wicked. Remember back in verse 10 it said, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and they seek the life of the upright. So again, same idea that the righteous man and the unjust man, they're going in two opposing directions. Opposing lifestyles, the one is going to be seen to be an abomination to the other and vice versa. So the way of the unjust man is an abomination to those that want to walk in righteousness. The way of righteousness or the straight way is an abomination to those that want to walk in wickedness. It just is what it is. And you're, if you're feeling sort of the consequences of that and people are taking it out on you and they don't like you because, it just is what it is. Keep running your race and don't let it get you down. Amen? Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. 
If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.